If you would go to Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. As you know, uh, we are trying to find ourselves every single Sunday somewhere in the Old Testament. Alright, so, uh, you know, last year I kind of reviewed the beginning of my sermons and I noticed, huh, we got way too much New Testament stuff going on here without Old Testament. So we need, to, we need to pick that up a little bit. So the Lord laid on my heart for this year, we're actually going to start every sermon at least in the Old Testament. So notice here, <clears throat> we're in the uh, prophets section of the Bible. And these are what you call the major prophets because they write a lot. So the minor prophets don't write as much, so they're called minor. Not minor in significance, but instead just they don't write as much as these guys. So Jeremiah is one of these major prophets who also writes the book of Lamentations, which finds itself in, right behind it. So um, notice here in chapter 6, just as, just as he's got the book going, um, we're going to pick up in verse 13 and read to 16. Notice these words from Scripture. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Let us pray. Jesus, thank You for Your holy Word to us. Make it a word for us this morning by the power of Your Spirit. Say things that don't even come out of my mouth to Your people and help us then to respond to that Word in repentance and faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we've been in a series on responding to our times. would be a nice way to put it. Uh, Sort of brought about abruptly by two Indian guys who ask me while I'm in India, you know, what is the church's response to what's going on in America? Uh, No one denies that bad things are happening. We've covered that the other week that I was here uh, no one in any political party, no one on any sort of movement would say things are just grandiose. And so we can all agree on that, but where we disagree is what the problem is and then how to fix it. And so what we've been offering is not a political solution that's not going to fix anything. Uh, not some sort of philosophical conclusion or argumentation. I mean... My answer to most problems is just, well, we need to think about that. And then once we think about it, we need to understand it. And once you understand it, then you simply apply it. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science. 
And yet that is not the most effective way to reach people. If it was, then Jesus would have just simply written philosophy and asked us to study that for the rest of our lives so as to understand it. But He did not. His answer is the cross. Why? Because the problem is deeper than any of us have been able to really comprehend on our own. And so we find ourselves this morning in this major prophet. And, you know, sometimes we feel so distant away from these guys. I mean, they, you know, they're preaching, they're uh, speaking in different times and, and in different ways and in poetic forms. And not to mention it was Hebrew. And so we feel so distant and disconnected sometimes when in fact they're not very far from us. Jeremiah's situation is not very far from us. Let me begin this morning with just sort of a simple illustration. And it's the difference between roads and paths. So you know how roads work. You know, if they're going to build a road, then if there's a mountain in the way, they blow it up. They go through it. They don't go around it. I mean, if you're from a plane looking at interstates, they're pretty straight. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Look from the sky, you're like, wow, that really is a straight road. And roads pave over certain obstacles. They plow through it. A road is designed to get you as quick as you can from one point to another. And there really are not that many twists and turns in the nicer roads that we have. And, you know, I say that to say this. I think that Christianity in America has been cruising on a road for some time now. We've not had much resistance. We've not had many twists and turns. There's not a lot of obstacles that really have been in our way in times past. And so we just sort of put it on cruise control, sat back, turned the AC on, and relaxed a little bit, right? But what's beginning to happen and what you're seeing unfold before you, yes, it's been in the process for quite some time now, is that we've actually been off the road. We've hit the curb. We've jumped the curb. Some say we've crashed. And now we're on a footpath. And you know how footpaths are. Or a biking trail or a hiking trail is very different than a road, isn't it? You come to a tree, you don't go through it. You don't cut it down. Instead, you go around it. So you'll notice over here at Monsano, right? Monsano. We go mountain biking up there. And you're, you're on a bike, and I'm telling you, there are a lot of twists and turns on a path. I mean, you're just constantly doing this. It, there is no cruise control on a path. There's not a lot of speed you're able to get up. Unless you want to crash, like I did once. <laughs> kind of makes it interesting, but uh, Jessica told me to stop, so I did. Stop going so fast. Got up to 20 miles an hour, and I thought, well, this is fun. And then all of a sudden, I hit a rut and was not able to control myself and literally flipped over, end over end, and I uh, thought I broke my hand. So, you know, here's the deal. A path is not going to work the same way as a road, is it? So what I'm saying is... We're going to have to begin to start entertaining some different methods in order to reach people. Not a different message, notice, but different methods. The the message always stays the same. The message has been the same ever since Genesis. It will stay the same all the way until Revelation is fulfilled. And yet, our methods change. 
We're not going to be able to talk and assume that people know the Bible anymore. They do not. It's always a shock for me when in class I ask if people know who Moses is and there are people that genuinely, absolutely do not know who he is. In Decatur, Alabama, the Bible Belt, and they they really, I'm being dead serious, they do not know who Moses is. They really don't. They don't know who Noah is. They have no clue the significance of David. Even, uh, you know, that that might be shocking to some of you. This may be even more shocking, but I asked one group of students if they remember Billy Graham and what he said. And this one girl said, "Who, who in the world is Billy Graham? I thought she was kidding. You see, we've assumed a lot in our American Christianity, and we've been on cruise control, and we must knock it off now. We're on a path. And you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Remember what Jesus says, right? In the New Testament, broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Broad is that way that leads to eternal destruction. It's easy to go that way. Many you will find on that road. But he says, narrow is the gate that leads to life. So this is nothing new to Jesus. He says, few will find it. Well, Jeremiah is one of these few. And his book recounts for us a, an extremely tumultuous time in Israel's history. They are learning that they are no longer a superpower. They are learning that they are no longer uh, living under God's favor. He now has told them, I've diagnosed you with a disease, and now I'm going to give you the cure through people like Ezekiel, through people like Isaiah, through people like Jeremiah, and the cure is going to be pretty radical. In other words, you're going to be exiled, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be judged, and that is the only way that you will be saved. In other words, there is no other salvation available to them except through the fire. It's sort of like being diagnosed with cancer. More than likely, you've had it for some time, and your body's been fighting against it, but losing. And in many ways, we did not really know our disease fully. And until you come to Jesus, you absolutely have no idea how deep sin runs. Only the Holy Spirit can show you that and reveal that to you through your life. And only the Holy Spirit can cleanse you from that through the blood of Jesus, but it's going to take the way of the cross. Not a broad way. Not a way that is easy, but instead a narrow way a way that is hard. And Jeremiah teaches this. He preaches this in his book. He is actually known in his book as as somebody who only has bad news. He even tells us at one point in the book, he says, I don't even want to have this message anymore of doom and destruction. But there is a fire in me that when I try to keep it down... It will not stay down. It comes out. There's a fire burning in my bones and I must speak. 
They made fun of him. It says actually that he was a household name and they laughed at him. Just like those would laugh at Jesus as he was on the cross, mocking him. And yet, Jeremiah holds for them and holds steady with an understanding of hope, an understanding of victory. He does not just see defeat. Yes, he's known as the weeping prophet, but if you'll notice at one point in the book, there is no more weeping. God deals with even that problem for Jeremiah. And now he goes around looking at the destruction in Jerusalem as they are destroyed, as they have their literal 9-11, except 20 times worse, the whole place is gone and raised to the ground, and they then are exiled to another country, 880 miles away to Babylon. And here's Jeremiah walking through the streets, and he recounts that for us. He lives during a, a much worse time than what we live now. We've had it easy. We've now gone onto a path. And so, we're going to have to do some things differently. And the first thing that I want to submit to you is that we need to prepare for the all-terrain. So, just like you have, some of you have some all-terrain vehicles and, you know, all-terrain tires, we're going to need to prepare for whatever may come. Used to, you could assume that people knew John 3.16. You could assume the authority of the Bible. You could assume that people understood Jesus correctly. We can no longer. To simply say to people, the Bible says, which is one of Billy Graham's famous lines, by the way, uh, is no longer any more authoritative than the Bhagavad Gita says, which is a Hindu book. It literally holds no authority for the people in the majority of our nation any longer. We cannot assume that people know who Jesus is. He has been watered down, even in the church, even in our own lives, so much that you know we need somebody to say the real Jesus needs to stand up and stand up in us. Amen. You see, there's really going to be three things that guide us on a path. And the Bible is very clear about these three things. The first is the Bible. The Scripture. So people may not understand any longer or come under the authority of the Bible, but it, no long, it still is our guide. It hasn't changed. It's not going away. It's not irrelevant. It's more relevant today than it ever has been. And so Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, and also deals with God's instructions to us, His Torah, His law, says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so if we're going to be on a path, we need some guidance. Where does our guidance come from? It comes from the Bible. It's going to help us navigate through the twists and turns, through the different obstacles that will be in your way all of a sudden. I mean, uh, many of you may have seen Bob's post uh, over the weekend, which, which kind of scared me. We go, we go mountain biking, like I said, at Mon- Montesano, and he had a picture of a rattlesnake that was about this long crossing the road. And I said, that kind of stuff makes me not want to go in the summer, which is typically why I normally go in the spring and winter rather than dead of summer, but you know, you never know what you're going to find out there. We found all kind of that. I almost ran over a squirrel one time mountain biking 
If you can believe that, little guy wouldn't ever get out of my way. And he shot left, shot right, and almost ran over him. Roadkill on my bike, you know, going like 10 miles an hour. Um, thankfully, jolted out of the way. Uh, but you never know what you're going to find on a path. You see, a path is different because you can't see as far ahead, can you? There's too many ups and downs. I mean, if you just think about hiking. You don't know what's around the next twist. It may be a waterfall. It could be a drop-off. You could be looking at just a little dip or a cliff. And so a path is going to be a little different in navigating than a road. We've assumed a road. What I'm saying is we're now on a path. And the Bible still will be our guide during this. Listen, you know, the more I study the Bible... And I know this is sort of just a personal uh, thing, but, but you know, the more I study the Bible from both a critical perspective, a cultural perspective, and just even a theological perspective, the more I put my faith in the Bible. As I lay myth beside it, as I lay other religious books beside it and read them in tandem, the more I trust what the Bible says. Its message is unique. You're not going to find it in any other book in the world. It is its own, it stands alone, and it's for us. It has been given to the church. It was even produced through the church. It's what's always almost comical is that people say, we don't really need the church, we just need Jesus. We wouldn't even have the Bible without the church. They're the ones who passed it down. Handwritten. So we must have the church. We must have the Bible. We must read the Bible with the church. Don't think that we are the first ones to deal with the problems that come toward us. Others have dealt with this in 2,000 years of living the Christian life. Here's what Solomon says. There's nothing new under the sun. What does he mean? Does he mean that you know there was, there's not going to be a new iPhone 27? No. He doesn't mean that. What he means is, it's the same old stuff. It may look different, it's got different clothes on, but it's the same old dude back there. The same old enemy, that father of lies, and he dresses up his lies in each generation and presents them anew, and people fall for them every single time. But the Bible doesn't. The Bible is light that expels the darkness that exposes the darkness. And the second thing is not a thing at all. It's a person. It's Jesus. Who is, the Bible says, the light of the world. And so in John 14, 6, here's what Jesus says, which is it's so profound, I want to stop and preach for 15 minutes on this. He says this, I am the way did you catch that? I am the way you say man I, you know, it's, it's hard to know the way I, I, it's just so many different voices we live in, a, we live in you know, the age of information is what this age is actually called and it should be called the age of misinformation we don't know what to trust we don't know what blog to go to we don't know where to get our news we don't know who's telling the truth But we do know who's telling the truth. For he not only stops at, I am the way, but I am the truth. 
We say, I don't know really how to live my life. Well, I'm glad you asked that too because here's the third part of that is I'm the way, the truth, and life. If you want life, if you don't enjoy your life now, get to know Jesus. He can give you a life that is for you, that is eternal. He knows you. He knows what we need. He knows what I need. See, it's not our job just to simply teach about the way. But it's to live in the way. Himself. So the difference is one of our perspective of salvation, really. You know, again, I always tend to just think we need to be taught more. I need to be taught more. I need to learn more. But you know what? And, and, you know, I love to argue just as much as the best of them. You know what I mean? Like, I actually enjoy a good argument from time to time. You know, especially if, if, if the person's actually intelligible. You know, just yelling back and forth, I'm not going to last very long on that, you know. But, like, if you actually have something to say, and, and we're going back with ideas. You know, my, my buddy uh, this week, you know, he's, he's uh, very idea-filled, you know, sort of like I am. So, we're, you know, we're hitting at it. He's in his northern context. I'm in my southern context. And, you know, the two shall never meet, right? And so we, uh, we're hashing it out, you know, and, and, and it's just a different perspective. But you know what? It sharpens me. I'm willing to change. I'm open to learn. I want to learn. But I love to argue, you know, and I love to argue for the purpose of learning, honestly. But used to, that wasn't the case. Used to, I like to argue to try to show people how much I knew. And one of the, one of the ploys I actually used was the, the device of the evil one. And that is, if you were to ask me about something or challenge me on something, I would give you so much information that there was no way you could ever respond to it. I mean, it would take you four weeks even to come back with it. I mean, it really was a secret ploy I would use. And it would shut up the other person. I mean, I would give you so much. I would, I would just flood you with so much stuff like, oh, what about this and what about that? You know, and it, it is a tactic in arguing. Um, but it's a tactic the enemy uses, isn't it? You see, as Christians, it's not just about flooding people with knowledge. They've got that at their fingertips. It's on their phone. You know what's more powerful that I have learned than an argument? Because I've, won, I've genuinely won arguments and lost friends. I've lost the person. You've seen that play out. Two people arguing and, and you're just thinking, even though that guy's winning, man, his attitude is just, I, I, I'm almost siding with this guy. Even though it's not the truth. No, you know what's greater than a philosophical argument is a life. A life. You can't argue with a life. There's nothing to argue about. A life lived for Jesus, like my pappy had, seven, you know, right at 80 years of living for God. Growing a family, being faithful in the small things, that says more than any argument ever written down. You don't believe that? Look at the way Jesus came to answer the problem of sin. He doesn't come to just sit there and teach all day, thankfully, lecture all the time, 
write a bunch of books, if that would have changed the world, He would have done it. Instead, He lived it out and proved His love for us in going to the cross and there is nothing to argue about there. He has already proven His love for us. Toward us. And so, the answer to all of our cultural problems, to the world's problem of sin, is to be a saint. To be holy. That term saint literally is the term that Paul uses every single time he writes to a church. I even mean Corinthians. You know, that old messed up church, right? That church that looks way too much like our churches. He calls them saints. Holy ones. Because here's the deal. The way God's going to save the world, and this is the third thing that I want to submit to you that's going to be our guide in this. Not only the Word of God, not only Jesus Himself, but His church. His body. So, God's way to save the world is going to be the church. It is His hands and feet. The church is the presence of God in the world. You say, hey, whoa, whoa, I thought there's a lot of bad people in the church. I thought there was a lot of bad priests. I read that in the news. And so therefore, I mean, why would I go there? They looked like everybody else. Well, here's the deal. The church is something real. It's not just a philosophical idea. Instead, God's presence is encapsulated, dwelling in the midst of real people. And real people are always going to be messed up. Real people are actually going to always misunderstand each other. You see, Jesus didn't call 12 spirits. He called 12 disciples. And they didn't always get it, did they? And yet, they were His chosen ones. They were the ones chosen for the job. One of my professors, Chris Lushover, used to always say, he would look out at us, which was a, you know, ragtag bunch of people, cutting up in the back and, you know, being very immature. And he would say, this is the best God has right here. This is who He's going to use right here. You know what he did by doing that? We can come at people and wag our fingers and say, you need to change, you need to... But you know what You know what? God spoke to me this past week? He said, I, I don't really need you to continue to always just tell people where they're wrong. I need you to tell them who they really are. You are sons and daughters of the King. You're not just some ragtag bunch of people. You're not a nobody in the world. Instead, you are God's chosen people. He has elected you. He has called you to do His work in the world. You are not your own. You are citizens of heaven. You have heaven living in you. Matthew says, as he says, the kingdom of heaven has come and it will come. No, you're, 
You're not a failure in Christ. He can empower you. You know, here's what I tell my children. And they mess up quite often. I look at them and say, Baylor, you are a good boy. So be a good boy. I know his heart. He fails sometimes. He gets worked up in a crowd. I don't know what it is about kids, but when you get more than eight together, they just go crazy. (laughs) But I know his heart. I know who he really is, and I speak that over him. I pray that for him. Doesn't God talk to us like that in the Bible? He's not always talking down to us. He's lifting us up. Yes, Yes, there is place for conviction. Yes, there is place for repentance. But you must understand who you really are created to be. You must know that good news. And if our message is going to succeed as the church, we must preach a good news and live that good news out in our life. The, you know, if, if we believe in traditional marriage, we can argue till we're blue in the face. But if we don't have a traditional valued marriage, a good marriage, what does the world see? A disconnect. That's what they see. They see hypocrisy. Look, Jesus says it this way. He says, look, I'm not going to get up the weeds along with the wheat until the end. I'm not going to separate the goats from the sheep until the end. You're going to have to live with the goats. That means that there's some goats in our midst. That means there's some weeds in our midst. That doesn't mean they're our enemies. That's not the enemy. Next week we're going to talk about who the actual real enemy is. They're not the enemy. Remember what Paul says, it's not flesh and blood. Don't get mad. They are victims of the father of lies. The best way to speak the truth is to live the truth with your life. So, we're going to have to be uh, prepared for these twists and turns. And the way we get prepared is to put the Word of God in here and live it out indeed. In the church. In His body. If we're going to overcome these obstacles, if we're going to face the Goliath situations of our time, the giants that seem to surround us, then we must proclaim what the Bible proclaims, and that is, this war is not our own. This battle is not even ours. It's the Lord's. Isn't that what David said right before he did something that's crazy? Here's this guy with a big sword and a big shield and a lot of armor and a lot of man, and he just slings a rock and hits him right between the eyeballs, and he's out. You see, it's going to be the little things. Not the big stuff. You're not going to have some big, you know, American platform to preach from. Instead, it's going to be at work. It's going to be with your neighbors. It's going to be living it out as you go eat and how you treat the waitress all the way down to the clerk at the grocery store. It's going to have to be small. God, for some reason, likes small things because they get bigger. They're meant to grow. Just like I was telling the kids, He likes to use the little things to show up the big things. The foolish to show up the wise. 
which is a very telling thing for preachers, right? That means all of us are actually foolish. And we're just trying to plead and hold on for dear life to speak the words of God to you and equip you to do the ministry. I can't do it. It's not my job. You are ministering. You have influence already. And as the church, you are the presence of God at work. You're the presence of God in your family. Yeah, family's messed up. Yeah, it's jacked up most of the time. But you know what? That's all the more reason to actually show forth Christ. Jesus says that crazy thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that always reminds you guys of, and that is, I'm gonna, he looks at the disciples and says, Look, I'm going to send you out as lambs among wolves. That's not a very nice thing to do. Unless he knows something we don't know, and that is, the only, world, the, way, the only way that the world is going to taste and see that the Lord is good is when they take a bite out of us. Now, here's the deal we've left the road. It's not going to be easy. But you know what? This thing of Christianity is always a journey anyway, isn't it? It's an adventure. I like twists and turns. If I'm just driving on the road, I get bored. I start feeling like a caged animal. I like to move around. I like to try to figure out obstacles. You know what? We've hit a path, but that's all right. It's always been narrow. It's always been hard. It's always the way of the cross. It never has been anything other than that. And so here's Jesus' cure for us. If we want a path that we're on, if we want a plan, here's His plan. Very clearly in the Gospels, He says, If you want to follow Me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Me. He is the way, and He walks that way. He'll just tell us, yeah, yeah, just, just go through those doors. He's already been through it. Did you notice Jeremiah's words here? He's standing at a crossroads. He says, give me, ask for that ancient path. Christ has already walked that road. He's already walked on the paths of life. Now it's our turn to follow. Did you know that early Christians were called followers of the way. That's what they were actually known for. Followers of the way. Are you following that way? Have you just been kind of cruising along? In your own life, have you hit one of these paths where it just seems like stuff's coming at you faster than, than you can... You need to slow down. The Scripture would call us to slow down Wait for the Lord. You would think Jesus after His resurrection would say, Guys, sick them. Go get them. And say, so He says, Wait for the Holy Spirit. This week, I had nowhere else to go. I was in a little cabin beside the river, Grand River, in Eaton Rapids, Michigan. God made me wait for Him. I waited upon the Lord and He renewed my strength. Do you need that in your life? Are you filling your life with the Scripture or with the world? Do you know Jesus as the way? Because if you don't, the good news is you can. He is here. He is here. His church is here to help. We'll pray with you. This is where you belong. This is the family of God. You see, on this path, this path, Jesus reminds us, leads to life and abundance and true joy. 
I know it sounds crazy. The harder way? The more narrow way? Oh yeah. It's God's way. May you find yourself following the One, living in the One who is the way, and He'll make your way straight. Amen.